right, good morning, family. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 24 through 27. If I haven't met you, my name's Ronnie, one of the pastors here. I lead our college ministry at the Salt Company. And Rob said it, but happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. My, uh, my mom and dad actually were here during the first service. And if you were to bump into my mom and meet her, you would initially think, like, she's, she's got, like, a quiet, sweet exterior. But I'm here to tell you this morning that underneath that, she's got a bit of a mean streak, like a, like a teeth-gritted mean streak. My dad w- was telling me more about it this weekend, but he was telling me about when they first started dating, okay? So they both went to college at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, she was on the volleyball team there, and he was on the baseball team there. I think they met in, like, the training room in the cold tub or something like that. But when they, when they first met, one of the first, like, pet name nicknames that my dad gave to my mom was bruiser. <laughs> not, guys, not the type of name that you want to tell your girlfriend right when you first start dating her, but he called her bruiser, and the story behind it is one of the first, like, the, as they were starting to get to know each other, um, she was playing in a road game at Notre Dame, and she had not one, but two black eyes and a broken nose just right in the middle of it. <laughs> My dad said he somehow, he, like, made a t-shirt that said bruiser, and that was kind of his way to try to connect with her in that. Okay, a story I heard about my mom growing up, and this was, I think this was like a common theme for her, but as she would play volleyball, one of the things you do if you don't know much about the sport is you, you serve it to the other side, right? If you serve it and it lands on the other side and the team doesn't return it, that's called a, an ace, okay? When my mom would get an ace, so she, she hits it, your forward momentum kind of takes you forward. She would just kind of, she would know, she would know right away it's going to be an ace. She would run up to the net and point at the girl that she's coming after next with, with the next ace. So that's, that's bruiser. Bruiser Goble right there. That's my mom. My, my dad kind of summed it up for me yesterday, and he was like, she was a little intense. She was a little <laughs> intense. Now, here's the transition. Last week in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, the Apostle Paul, the loving, joyful, peaceful Apostle Paul, he got a little intense, right? We got to see from him just like what, what he grits his teeth about. Look at uh, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, woe to me. If I do not preach the gospel, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. What a line. And then this is what he says at the end. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Everything for the sake of the gospel. This was Paul's ambition. As David taught us last week, this was Jesus's ambition, and it is to be our ambition as well. But Paul, he wasn't just a man of ambition. He was a man of action. He followed through on the passion that God put in his heart. Like, he didn't just write down the words on the page or preach them. He lived them. He was willing to pay the price. You could literally translate verse 23 as, I do all of this on account of the nature of the gospel. Meaning like the very nature of the gospel, just what the gospel is, demands follow through. Not just words, but a life. Not just big dreams, but like a gritty daily pursuit. And back in chapter 4, you'll remember that Paul, he said, hey, the kingdom of God, it doesn't consist in mere talk but in power. So now look with me at the text for today, starting in verse 24. 
Building off what he said, he now says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? In other words, it's not that everybody gets a trophy, right? Like it's not like you just sign up and you get a trophy. That's not how life works, Paul says. He says, so run that you may obtain it. Run that you may win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so last week, we asked ourselves, what is the ambition for our life and does it match God's ambition? Today, we ask ourselves, are we willing to do what it takes to obtain it. This week is about all of us agreeing together to not let the dreams that God has put on our hearts for his glory die because of our lack of effort and commitment. It's about not just saying like, I'll do it, but I'm doing it, and one day I've done it. Because it's one thing to sign up for a race, right, in a moment of passion. It's a whole other thing to endure it and to run it. That's what Paul says at the end of his life in ministry in 2 Timothy 4. He says, hey, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. Paul is calling to us to run in such a way that we obtain the prize. To live a life where our ambition isn't just a tweet or a slogan or like a moment of passion, but actually a lifetime pursuit, an ambition that doesn't fizzle out but is actually accomplished. So let's get going with it. And the first thing that we need to look at together is we need to really make sure we understand what is he talking about when he says like the race and the reward. Okay, so look back with me at verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize, the reward. So any runners in here? Anybody go on some, some jogs leisurely, casually? Yeah. So side note, because literally the metaphor he's using is about running, there's going to be a decent amount of sports references in here, but I did sprinkle in and mix in some other things if that is not your thing. So just bear with me on that. But he's using this analogy of running a race, right? And, and it's a good analogy because it's basically, he's trying to describe like this is what life is like, and it's not uncommon to use this analogy because our lives, they all have a fixed beginning point and an end point and just kind of the middle point is like this race that we're running. And one of the main questions that everyone has to figure out is, what am I running for? What am I working for and towards what am I living for? So that's my question for you is, what is the race that you are running and what is the reward that you're looking for at the end of the race? Okay, so did any of you guys watch the new Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix? Anybody seen it besides me? Okay, don't be ashamed. Now here's the thing, guys. If just as a sidebar, a little, little tip for you. The, the entry point into dating my wife was I was standing at a distance. She's in a group, a conversation. This is before you could like find people online, social media and all this. I had to like literally walk up to her and talk to her. They're having a conversation I can hear from a distance about Taylor Swift. And I'm like, I know, I know Tim McGraw. I know a couple of things about this Taylor Swift. So I inserted myself into the conversation. I kind of just like jumped on the wave of what they're talking about and found my way into it. And if you would have been here in the first service, you would have seen two kids later. The rest is, is history. Okay, so little tip for you guys. 
sometimes it's good to know a thing or two about Taylor Swift, <laughs> right? But let me tell you, in the documentary, it was fascinating. I was blown away. I was, it was so unexpected how, and maybe you didn't think it was good, I was amazed by just like watching her, her life and everything. And, and here's the thing, in the documentary, kind of at the center of the whole plot line of it, Taylor Swift reveals what her race has been all about, what she's been running after, what she's been chasing, the reward she's looking for, and you know what it is? It's the applause of people. It's literally what she says, like it shows like on a stage with a crowd, and she says, that's what I'm living for. And I haven't made it yet in the music industry, but I can totally relate, okay, in some other areas of my life. In the documentary, she talks about how her whole identity was built on the applause and the praise of the people that she performs for. That's what drives her to write her songs and to work as hard as she does. That is her reward. And she gets it, right? Like from a young age, that's, that's her story. It's like from a young age, she's one of the most successful artists that's ever lived. She's crazy successful. But then she finds out the hard way what Paul's talking about in verse 25 when he says some people run after a a perishable wreath, a reward that doesn't last. So is anybody else still mad at Kanye West for what he did back in 2009? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Is anybody still upset about this? I actually didn't know about it until the, until the documentary. I kind of missed that, but here's what Kanye West does. In 2009, Taylor Swift's like 19 years old. She's on top of the world. She wins at the Video Music Awards, the award for like best music video of the year, and she's literally receiving the award, like the, the thing that she's after, and then up comes Kanye onto the stage. You guys remember this? And like he, he takes the mic and he's like, hey, real quick, I just, gotta, I just gotta say something. What I've gotta say is that Beyonce, and he points to Beyonce over there in the crowd, he says, Beyonce made the best music video that's ever been made. And then he just leaves it at that and walks off the stage. And so Taylor is literally just standing there, and now in the documentary, all the music like, goes dark and just focuses on her. She's standing there, and she says, this is when like, the first domino started to fall in my life, where the applause and the praise started to turn to literally people booing her. And what she finds out later is that they're actually booing Kanye and, and not her. But this launches her into years and years of now starting to take criticism. And what she starts to see is that the reward she was running after is perishable. It is insecure. It is temporary. It doesn't last. And ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. Now, the other person we got to talk about is the GOAT. The greatest of all time. You know who he is, David Wilde. Tom Brady, okay? Tom Brady quarterback, now for the Buccaneers, was the New England Patriots, arguably the best, best football player who's ever lived, blah, 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 all this, all this stuff. He was in an inter had an interview with 60 Minutes after he won his third Super Bowl years and years ago. You can find it on YouTube. So he's like at the top of the world, three, three Super Bowls. Now he's got like eight. But in this interview, listen to what he says. In a vulnerable moment, he's talking and he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? You know, maybe a lot of people say, hey, man, this is it. I've reached my dream, my goal. Me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I'm 27 years old. I've done it. But what else is there for me? And there's like this pause, and the guy who's interviewing him says, well, Tom, what's the answer? 
And then Tom just kind of misty-eyed looks off in the distance and he's like, I wish I knew. And then it just cuts. This is what it feels like to lay your life down for a reward that doesn't last. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. And we all know that feeling of it just kind of slipping through your, your fingers. You know what I'm talking about? It's not from a music video award that you won or a Super Bowl ring, but it's that relationship. It's that promotion, that house that you saved up for that you finally got in, that, that body, that money. Whatever it is that you're chasing, even when you get it, it doesn't last and it doesn't satisfy. It's never enough. But the good news of this text is that what Paul is talking about here, he's, he's not talking about that kind of a race or that kind of a reward. He says that the reward God has called us to, the blessing that he wants a share in, the crown that he wants to be qualified for is imperishable. Meaning it won't fade away, its satisfaction won't diminish, and it can be obtained. But Paul says we have to go get it. He says, we have to run in such a way that we obtain it. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. My question for you is, are you running after that reward? Okay, so let's really lean into this running metaphor a little bit more, okay? I've got what I'm going to call the three P's of running. I feel like I should be wearing like a headband right now as I'm talking about this. It's almost like if you guys have seen the movie Dodgeball, the three three D's of dodgeball, dodge, dip, dive, duck, all all those. These are the three P's, okay? The three P's of of running, and this is honestly an outline for some things that Paul is going to share with us here. Purpose, practice, and and pace. Let's start with, with purpose. This is how we run that we may obtain it. Okay, so we have to run with purpose. Can you imagine going on a run, like a literal jog, with no purpose? Some of you, I think, maybe do this. I've heard of this. I, can't, I cannot conceive how I would just leave my house and be like, yeah, I'm going to nowhere. I'm going with nowhere in mind, no destination, right? Like no time that I'm trying to hit, no place that I'm going, even like a certain amount of calories that I'm trying to burn. But do you know that that's how a lot of us live our lives? Like we are on a run to nowhere and for nothing. Purposeless, just existing, just merely surviving. Paul, he calls this running aimlessly, living with no particular direction in mind. He compares it to like a boxer who's, who's beating the air, working really hard, but aiming at something that doesn't really matter. And this is where some of you are at in your life this morning. You're living, but you don't know where you're going, aimless. Just kind of drifting along through life, surviving. Others of you are living really purposefully. You're you're like working up a great sweat in your life. You're accomplishing a lot of things, but you're like a boxer beating the air, wasting your energy on the wrong target. Some of you guys, you know just about everything there is to know about all of the recent Green Bay Packers draft picks. But almost nothing about what's going on in your own soul, in your wife's heart, your kids, or the things of God. Some of you ladies are are very busy and productive doing a million things, but you're not growing in godliness. 
You have no margin or capacity in your life to make an eternal impact. But Paul, he seems to think it's possible to live our life with a clear sense of purpose and direction. He thinks that there's like a real target that we can aim at, something that we were made for more than just the relationship, more than the promotion or the bank account or the body, something that doesn't perish like those things. And so what he's been saying in all of chapter 9 is that he's willing to lay down and give up and sacrifice many of the freedoms and the rights and the comforts and the privileges and the blessings of this earthly life for the greater reward that is waiting for him in the next life. Okay, so he's got this ambition, but he's got a, a motivation under his ambition. And in a weird way, he's actually like, I am selfless for selfish reasons. Have you, you guys noticed that? Look what he says. He's like, hey, I want a share in that future blessing, and so I'll do whatever it takes. I'll exercise self-control because I want to be a part of that future blessing. That's the motivation under his ambition. And I know it's hard for me, and I think it's hard for us as, as modern people to actually start to try to figure out how do I start to value eternal rewards more than the tangible but temporary rewards of this earthly life. The eternal ones, they seem so far away, they seem abstract and intangible to us. How, how could we actually live for them? But that's what Paul's trying to help us with today. Look what he says in 26. He says, so I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, my, my physical, tangible body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so Paul, his, his life ambition, right, his purpose is to do everything for the sake of the gospel that he might share in its blessings, but he's saying, I have to discipline myself to run toward that goal, or it won't happen. So like an athlete, if anyone in this room was like, I want to I be able to bench press 400 pounds, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to spend a significant amount of time training to become the type of person with the capacity to be able to bench press 400 pounds. You, you, no matter how passionate you say it, you're going to have to train if you actually want to become that. And in the same way, if you and I want to become the type of people that can live with God forever and enjoy him forever and the reward and the blessing of heaven, we need to undergo a significant transformation in this life, body and soul. It's kind of a mysterious thing to think about. We're actually going to get more into that in 1 Corinthians 15 later in the summer. But for now, I just want to ask yourself to look at yourself. Really, look at yourself. Maybe like your hand or look deep inside yourself and just ask, do you want to spend eternity with yourself the way that you are right now? I don't want to do that with me, and, and I'm sorry, I love you, but I don't want to do that with you either, and I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't either. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you, to cleanse you and forgive you for your sin. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to transform you and to change you and to sanctify you. And so this is what Paul's talking about when he says exercising self-control and disciplining his body. He's saying we must exercise self-control now if we want to experience and enjoy the future blessings later. And this is a very, very different training plan than the training plan offered to us by just popular culture. Okay, what, what the popular culture is going to tell us is that, hey, if you want to run your race, if you want to find your purpose, basically what you need to do is look deep down inside yourself. 
And whatever you feel is right, just express that to the world. Be authentic and express it. But you see that Paul, he's saying just about the exact opposite. He's saying, deny yourself. Those impulses of your, impulses of your flesh, exercise self-control on those things. Discipline yourself. Jesus himself, he said, you got to lose your life if you want to find your life in me. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says we must train ourselves for godliness, pointing to the fact that spiritual fitness actually requires training and works much like physical fitness. Now at this point, there might be some alarms going off in your head because you were like, I thought this was Doxa Church. I thought this was a church that preaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And you're starting to sound like you're telling me I've got to earn it. And I've got to put in the work, and I've got to put in the effort. And so as much as I'd love to just leave you in that tension for a little while longer, I'm not going to. I'm going to relieve it right now and point out to you the fact that Paul, he is not teaching us that we have to earn our salvation. Listen to me carefully. He's teaching us about the effort that it takes to become the people that God has saved us to be. He's not talking about replacing God's grace with our works. What he's talking about is the work that it takes to truly experience and take hold of what is ours in his grace. That's why if you look at the language of verse 24, he talks about receiving the reward, not achieving the reward. But then he goes on in 25 to 27 to talk about the effort that it takes to pursue the transformation by the grace of God. He's talking about effort, not earning. You got that? Effort, not earning. And so for thousands of years, what Christians have done is we've practiced what are called the spiritual disciplines. Some, other, some churches will call these the, the means of grace. And it's, it's an attempt, like think of that, means of grace to, to communicate that there's these practices that we can have in our lives that are not ways to earn the grace of God, but ways to actually receive and participate in the grace of God, God's loving favor and attitude towards us. So if you picture God just with his like open hands, open, free grace for us, the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace are how we take hold of all that is ours in Christ. And so you have some disciplines like confession of sin and fasting and giving money that are, they're very like cross-shaped actually, if you think about it. They're, they're very much oriented around self-denial and sacrifice. They shape us into the image of Jesus specifically as it relates to his cross. And then there's some other spiritual practices and disciplines like Sabbath rest and feasting and corporate worship like we're doing this morning that are actually very like resurrection-shaped. There are these times and these things that we can do to put ourselves in the path of God's grace that help us to, to set our minds and hearts on eternity. And sometimes we even get just like a, like a foretaste of what that future blessing is going to be like. And then you've got just like the nitty-gritty core disciplines like prayer, reading your Bible, meditating on Scripture, these things that should be daily disciplines, daily practices, all so that we can just run together towards the grace of God. And I don't have time to get into many more of these, but I think this is a great conversation to have in connection groups during the week. Share wisdom, share resources with each other, help each other figure out how to run the race well by practicing these spiritual disciplines. But to keep with the running metaphor, I want to say a quick word about uh, pace. 
Because if you talk to any distance runner, they'll tell you that pace is everything. Learning how to pace yourself for the race that you're running is, is so key if you want to be successful. And so let's just all assume for a minute that we are all like aiming our lives in the right direction, trying to run the race for the imperishable reward that Paul is talking about here. And if that's the case, some of you this morning need to really reckon with the fact that Paul uses the word run for a reason. Because your pace is too slow. Okay, and I don't want to yell at you like I'm your coach or something, but Paul says run for a reason and you are moving too slow. There's so little urgency in your pursuit of God, so little ambition for what he wants to do with the one life that he's given you. And so to you, Paul, he's saying run, like pick up your pace and follow Jesus. But then on the other hand, some of you need to reckon with the fact that the race Paul is talking about is a marathon and not a sprint. Sometimes the pace, you guys know this, you felt this, the pace that we run at can actually cause us to, to outpace Jesus in, in this really weird way, to run away from him, to diverge from him, to run past him. A lot of times it can cause us to miss out on the things that God's doing in people's lives all around us because our, fa- our pace is so fast and so furious that we can't pay attention your life is so full of activities and responsibilities that you don't have the capacity left or the margin left to just be with him and enjoy him which is to miss the whole point of your life to know god to box against the air as paul calls it there's a pastor in new york city very fast-paced, busy place. His name's John Tyson, and he, he talks about this idea, and he breaks it up in some, some helpful categories for us. He says, you know, number one, you could be running, living your life at a complacent pace, right? Too slow, too little ambition, not fit for the Christian life. But on the other side of the spectrum, you could be running your life at a fatal pace, too fast, not enough margin and rest, ultimately burning out the very ambition that you're so passionate about. But then he says, right there in, in the middle is what he calls a, a sacred pace. A sacred pace. A way of running your race that in the end is going to allow you to finish and win. And I read a book last summer by a, a pastor named David Murray who wrote a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. And essentially what he says in the book is he, he talks about striving to live your life at what he calls the pace of grace which in the end turns out to be the pace of Jesus Christ. And that is the key to finding the right pace, isn't it? Walking with, moment by moment, looking to Jesus. And so Hebrews chapter 12 is going to come up on the screen. And I want you to, to look at this because the language that's actually used here talks about the Christian life as a race and Jesus being like our, our pace setter, the one that we're to look to. Look at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus. It says, The founder and perfecter of our faith. Those words you could translate it as like the, the forerunner and the finisher the one who started and finished the race, the one that went before us, the one that shows us the way. He's our, our pace setter, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Doxa, the single most important strategy for running your race to win is to stick close to Jesus because he's already ran it to perfection. We see in Jesus Christ the perfect example of a life well-lived for the sake of the gospel. He endured the cross and now he wears the crown and so we as his followers, we pattern our race after him. We read about his life in, in the Bible and we try to align our purposes, our practices, our pace with his, right? We learn from him and that's literally what it means to be a Christian. Christian literally means like a little Christ, a, a disciple, a follower. And we're not supposed to be Jesus. That's actually called idolatry. <laughs> like none of you should be getting pulled in and saying, okay, so I literally need to be Jesus Christ. No, that is like the, the worst way to sin possible. But we're to become like him. We're going to become like Jesus Christ, to strive to become like him. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, he, he calls this like the upward call of God, that he is striving and straining towards trying to become the person that God made him to be, run the race that God has called him to run, the race where Paul becomes the Paul who is like Jesus. But as important as it is to stick close to Christ as our pace setter, it is even more important for us to remember that he has already finished his race for us. Because let's be honest, in our race, in our Christian life, we are going to trip and we are going to fall and we're going to fail, we're going to sin, and we're going to suffer, but you will finish the race if you belong to Jesus. He will literally pick you up and carry you across the finish line if he has to. And so this picture is emerging like the, the triumphant posture of a Christian is actually to limp through life with our hands open in dependence on Jesus moment by moment. His, his ongoing grace is our fuel. And that's what Paul's talking about here at the very end in 27 when he says, I, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Doxa, the only way to be disqualified from the race is to at some point in your journey stop thinking you need the gospel to reject the grace. That's why Paul's saying, I'm preaching the gospel to others, but my first work is to preach it to and believe it myself. And so one day, if you, if you cross the finish line of your life with a swagger, just kind of leaning forward on your own abilities and accomplishments with, with hands open to receive this thing that you've earned from God, you will be disqualified. Because in that moment, it will be revealed that you didn't want God to save you. You didn't think you needed him to save you, but you were running your whole life to save yourself. But if together, we as a community, we lock arms and we limp across the finish line with these empty hands, Jesus will receive us. And we're going to see on his head in that day the, the crown of thorns that has been transformed into this imperishable crown of glory. Because he is our reward. 
And in the language of Hebrews 12, we are the joy that was set before him. He'll be ours, we'll be his. He will place a crown of glory on our heads. We will be qualified to enjoy him forever. He will be delighted to have us. In his book, The Two Towers, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, author of Lord of the Rings, he, he wrote this. He says, The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy. It's the highest of all rewards. To, to, to find the most praiseworthy one and then be praised and approved of and qualified by them, that would be the highest reward possible. That's the imperishable crown. That's the blessing of the gospel that Paul wants to share in. The praise of the praiseworthy. To endure and run your race through this life for his glory, limp through the finish line with empty, open, dependent hands and meet your Savior and have him look at you. Your story, what you went through, what you carried, that he carried you through and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's run to obtain that reward. Let's pray. Father, we we realize that in this church family, there are individuals that you have have called to yourself, and you've called us to things, Lord, that that are unknown to us in this moment that we need wisdom and courage for. God, you've called us to walk through things right now that we are, we are fully aware of. We just don't know what to do about them. God, and so we, we make the only move we can make, God. We open up our hands in dependence on you and ask for more grace, more wisdom. Lord, the stamina, the endurance, the strength, the direction that we need for our race, it, it comes from you, not us. We need you to do what only you can do. God, we want to put one foot in front of the other, but we need you. We need you to set the pace. We need you to carry us at times. God, we need you to be our champion. Jesus, thank you that the end is written. The work is finished. We run with a living hope. We want to follow you to the end.